Welcome to the Gym Wits Podcast. I'm Ryan George. I'm Justin Guild, a.k.a. Chef Sonic. And we are the Gym Wits. So, did you see the fight? I did. And uh, the fight we are referring to is uh, Daniel Cormier versus Stipe Miocic. And yeah, this is probably a couple weeks late, so if you're... Yeah, by the time yeah, this posts. By, this, by the time this posts, a few weeks late, but it's it's relatively fresh for us. And Yeah, yeah. and congratulations to DC for winning the heavyweight title and for holding two belts, being only the second fighter uh, in UFC history to hold two belts at the same time. Yeah. And be current, you know, current fighter. Yeah, it's impressive. If you're not, you know, if you're not big on the sport, it's still a, a really interesting story. Uh, Cormier was a guy who was an Olympian, um, but due to a bad weight cut, didn't get to compete. Right? He didn't. It was the one time he didn't get to compete. Right? Due to a bad it? weight cut, um, he shifted over to MMA at, at an older age start, to start MMA. It was in his early to mid 30s when he started, yep. um, and he uh, he. He was a heavyweight when he started, and he was dominant at heavyweight. But then his teammate and one of his closest friends also fought at heavyweight, Cain Velasquez. So he actually dropped down to light heavyweight in order to allow his friend and teammate um, to, to ru- make a run at and win and, and defend the title. So he was then dominant at light heavyweight. But his his foil was John Jones. And so he had lost twice to John Jones who had run into his own issues, which included steroids and uh, arrests and drugs and all this stuff. So Cormier won the title, but in a lot of people's minds, it was kind of an asterisk next to his name because there was always John Jones. And even though he he had the steroids and everything, he still beat him twice. And uh, so for some people, they didn't want to consider him the champion. And so the fact that he was able to go up to heavyweight and finally, you know, defeat the heavyweight champion kind of legitimized him in some people's eyes. Not me. I thought, you know, he was, he was light heavyweight champion. He's yeah. one of the best. He was great. He just, John Jones is, is just also <laughs> one of the best, if not the best, if he could get his, you know, act together. But, um, but you know, it was, it was a great story and great to see him, you know, at 39 years old, he's the baddest man on the planet and, yep, and it's yep, really cool is. and he was fighting a guy who's really tough and much bigger well not he, he's much longer but he wasn't he didn't weigh more he didn't weigh him. more but he's he's a bigger frame yeah right? you know, did you sure. did did what what did you what was your prediction before the fight you know i just i said you know you can't count dc out i just had a feeling he was going to pull it out somehow he just has that sort of you know that metal yeah right now um before we get to our uh, before we get to our interview today, which is a really awesome interview, what did you think of when Brock came and clearly the whole thing oh, yeah. was staged? Brock Lesnar, the very famous professional wrestler in WWE, and also an, an ex heavyweight champion. He is a legitimate fighter. You see a lot of people say, "Oh, Brock sucks." He does not suck, right? Yeah. You know, he lost to one of the best guys. He was a heavyweight champion, right? He is, you know, he's older now, but Brock was very, very good. You know, in his day, as a, he didn't last long in MMA, but he was very successful during that time period. And he they, he ran into the ring. It was it was clearly staged, and they were expecting to happen. He goes in the ring, and him and uh, Brock Lesnar and, and DC have this big time professional wrestling standoff where they're clearly going to promote the fight. That's going to and they're hyping it so they can get a big money fight. What do you think about this? Cl- very sort of clear uh, professional wrestling yeah. antics in, in in the UFC. I'm, I'm of 
two minds with it. I think for a long time, MMA was trying to, and largely successful at legitimizing itself as a real sport and not just, you know, between the rules, the rule changes and mainstream media and especially sports media starting to follow it. Uh, you know, it, it really did, it had to, it had a lot you know, it kind of had a lot of, of progress to make in, in the eyes of, of the public to, to legitimize it's itself, especially it was from illegal. the... It was banned in most states at, at one point. Yeah, especially from like the human cockfighting days. So, yeah. uh, so I like to see it as a legit sport. And so the problem I have is from a financial standpoint and from a fan engagement standpoint, you know, Brock Lesnar sells the bigger name. These they're the old timers who really shouldn't be fighting, but have big names. They do sell. So I understand why they're doing it, but I think it, it then kind of delegitimizes it because, you know, like him or not, Brock Lesnar should be nowhere near a title shot right now. He, his last, you know, he, he's barely fought. His last fight, fight, he he got busted for steroids. So he, so technically he hasn't won in, in almost a, I don't know, a decade or five years. He hasn't won in a long time. His last two fights against legit competition were, were brutal uh, one and one sided. So, he doesn't deserve a shot, but because he's a huge star and because he's one of the few guys that will sell a ton of pay-per-views, he is being thrust into this spot that he really doesn't deserve to be in. And there are plenty of other guys who've been fighting regularly and consistently and yep. doing well, including Stipe, who has had the most title defenses, I think, in history at heavyweight. Yep, so, yep. you know, I, that's my issue is just that there's you're, you they spent so much time and effort legitimizing the sport only to then you know, fall back on these antics that, yeah, short term, they might get buys, but I just, you know, if you want entertainment, then watch the WWE. If you want a legitimate sport where people are competing against each other, you know, you have to build that. And and I just think it doesn't, it does a disservice to the sport. Now, what about for the sake of DC, who's given uh, his career to wrestling, MMA, and this is his, this is his retirement fund. This is his, you know, he's given a lot. He This is his fight where he gets to make a ton of money, take care of his family, never have to work again. Okay, fair enough. I think that there, there is an argument to be made personally. Plus, DC won. He wanted this. He yeah. was like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. He well, was so happy. What I love about DC is there's some videos online you can find of him like, you know, he's about to fight Josh Barnett. And they're sitting chatting, like fanboying out about pro wrestling and stuff. So, so he's legitimately a fan of pro wrestling, and yeah, it, so no, it's absolutely. fun to watch. And look, I you, can't, you know the story where him and Kane went to the to like WrestleMania yeah. dressed in the Lucha Libre. Yeah. yeah so you, you can't begrudge him wanting that big payday, and you you know anybody is going to want that. And so I think in that way, I get it. You know he's he's been in the sport for a long for a while, uh, you know. But I, I still I think there's a larger issue. Of sure. the UFC and and Bellator and the other major MMA organizations, there's a larger issue of them playing to the kind of lowest common denominator and, and kind of pulling off these antics that are kind of short-term gain, but I think long-term they do damage. So, okay. yeah, if this was a one-time thing, I'd be fine with it. But the fact of the matter is that they make move after move where clearly it's like, all right, what's going to put you know butts in seats now? And and they and you know they put a lot of stock in Conor McGregor and a lot of stock in Ronda Rousey and, and in fighters who ended up for whatever one reason or another not panning out 
long term and i think they could have spent more time like they did in the you know early mid 2000s or late 2000s where they built a group of fighters who even to this day will sell pay-per-views even though they're older and they shouldn't you know they're not competitive with the higher level guys so i I think liddell so famous huh what why was chuck liddell so famous what did he do to earn that knock people out he he fought yeah he fought fought, and he he didn't he he didn't say much, but he was just cool and yeah, but one of the most popular. Thing, and, and they did a great job for a while. They did an Anderson amazing. Didn't even speak English. There was a long barely, time where they could. did an amazing job promoting fighters, and I think at some point they got away from the you know they they got away from the model of we're going to promote these interesting people who have personalities in their own right, but we're going to build this group of fighters in every weight class. There were fighters that you wanted to see, and now we're at a point where it, we don't really have that anymore. Well, and here's this, this and we'll, we'll end with this. Yeah. Here's sort of the sad part, is that there's actually a, a ridiculous oh, talent crop. Well, yeah. They have more talent than they have ever had. Yeah. It's it, The divisions are so stacked. The young kids coming up who have really, a lot of them are have fun quirky personalities are certainly marketable and yet they they you know devolve into pro wrestling so i'm happy i agree with you i'm i'm happy with the fact that dc is going to make a lot of money like that's but i'm glad that he will but i agree that overall it's short-term gains instead of developing from the ground up agreed well, that transitions nicely into our discussion uh, with our interview for today, uh, Tom Seaborn, who, among many other things, is a martial artist, but he's also an author, a PhD, a uh, cyclist, an avid cyclist, um, a Guinness a World Record World holder, holder. Um, just a number of things. I'm not even going to try to list the accolades. Interesting guy. Yeah, and very interesting. We had a great conversation. So here is our interview with Tom. Hey, everyone. We are here with Tom Seaborn. Hey, Tom, how's everything? Hey, great. Thank you guys for uh, letting me come on your your great podcast. Oh, of course. Yes, and thank you for coming on. So Tom is is truly a renaissance man. Like, there's, I don't think there's anything this guy has not done or accomplished. He's a PhD. He's he's an author, right? You, I believe you hold a world record as well, right? This does everything. Really uh, a remarkable gentleman. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's a, that's a nice introduction. But, uh, you know, it's just it, it's something where, uh, you know, when I was 11 years old, I made up my mind I wanted to do something with my life and uh, just kind of kept on going since then. Awesome. Well, well, I guess that kind of segues us a little well into we always kind of initially with any guests, we want to get a little bit of background on your own kind of athletic history, you know, starting from if, if you started at sports as a kid, if you started as an adult, we kind of want to get an idea of like, what, what, where was your start with fitness, and then kind of how that expanded uh, to what it's become? Okay, well, it, it did start when I was 11. I was at a party, and a guy said, turn the music down, and I said, turn it up. And he said, let's go outside. So we go outside. And he takes off his shoes, so I had no idea, and so I took off my shoes, and he threw a perfectly placed roundhouse kick to my groin. And that's when, that's when I knew, I, you know, I, I just crumbled. So I knew the next day I started taking karate. I, we were, I was living on the island of Okinawa. My dad was in the service. So I went to the, uh, it's called a Sebukan Dojo, and I never missed a workout, six nights a week, two hours a night. And loved it. Not not for the self-defense, but once I got involved, the discipline. And, and in answer to your question, we as, uh, you know, 
being over there for, I was over there for three years. So uh, eventually got my brown belt and started teaching the, the underbelts and realized that's, that's what I wanted to do with my life was teach. And so that's what I'm doing today. So I, I got a question. I'm trying to get this visual. We're, Justin and I both practice martial arts at, at, at different levels. Um, how, how did he throw a roundhouse kick to your groin? I'm just trying to figure. Was it like oh, a, ra- like was it? It was because typically okay, you we, think we, of a kick might... to the groin as straight up, but did he actually throw a roundhouse to the groin? I don't know why. This, I'm trying to figure <laughs> yeah, out this visual. Maybe <laughs> maybe we have our semantics yeah. different. Um, roundhouse to me is what you might call a wheel kick. Okay. Um, it's it's just it can be perfectly thrown, and he hit me with the ball of his foot. I mean, okay. it was it was perfect. In yeah. fact, his name, if he's listening right now, is <laughs> Dale Marcou. I you know <laughs> I remember like yesterday because it because it changed my life because karate changed my life, and that's yeah. you know I started taking karate, uh, came back to the states. There were no school. I was we moved back to Allentown, Pennsylvania. There were no karate schools in the vicinity. But then, miraculously, a taekwondo studio opened up less than 200 yards from my house. I mean, that, how providential was that? That's, so I go down yeah. there, and the head instructor, uh, Sun Ho Chang, allows me to teach the beginners. In, in, uh, and then what he would do would allow me to attend the advanced classes. And uh, that's when I started uh, competing in the taekwondo events internationally and had a great time with that. Uh, and you were asking about athletic career, uh, made a big mistake. I, I did a full contact fight on, on a week's notice. In fact, it's mm. on my Facebook page, but I got a phone call. I thought you were, hey, I, I thought you were saying that, it's on, that, it, that it was on your face. I'm like, yeah, that's what would happen if I only <laughs> took a week to prepare. You would see it on my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, but you know, when you're a kid, and I was 20, early 20s when, when I took the fight, um, I mean, the, the the fight turned out okay. I, I ended up fighting a guy. I, I weighed 190. He weighed about 260. He was an ex-football player. But uh, if you watch the fight, and it, I have a little bit of it on my Facebook page, but um, I was able to stay away and just kick hard to the body. And so uh, no problems with that. But I lost my amateur status with the, uh, you know, Taekwondo and the Olympics and all that. So uh-huh. that, that was kind of a ruin, the ruination of my career. And and as you guys know, being in martial arts, I I look at Taekwondo now as a joke. When I watch it on TV, I don't know if you guys watch it in the Olympics, but what, what I, a I've tuned in a couple travesty. times, it's just out of curiosity. So what about what I'm interested? Cause yeah. So my like my, my I do Muay Thai, um, and uh, Justin has done Judo, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, various uh, some Muay Thai as well. So what about it now is is a kind of travesty to you? Yeah, they changed the rules. And unfortunately, it's now an electronic scoring system. Um, so all you have to do is touch your opponent with your front foot. And so if you, it, it's the most boring sport in the world. I bet it won't make it through. The, you, know, you know, the next Olympics is Japan. Yeah. And karate is going to be an Olympic sport. And I, I'm guessing it's probably going to replace taekwondo because nobody wants to watch it anymore. It, and the blood and guts era of, of taekwondo was good. You know, we all we wore was a kind of a chest protector that you, you had to hit it to make a, you made a sound or you could knock the guy out. Everything was, was real, but the electronic scoring system has taken away all of the impact. And so, yeah, it's, if you Google it, it's a pretty much of a joke. And so there's a lot of us old timers that are trying to get it back to the old scoring system, but that's probably not going to happen because you, you know how politics are. Yeah. And 
it's already gone so far. So that's unfortunately, uh, I, I'm afraid Taekwondo may be out out the door of the Olympics, but we'll see. It's funny you mention it. I hope this doesn't bore listeners of ours that aren't martial artists. But um, it, it, I have an interesting <laughs> anecdote because um, I so with, with Muay Thai, like when I started, I started about. Oh God, 10 years ago. Um, I know when we, when I would spar or fight with guys that had a Taekwondo background, but transitioned to Muay Thai, they were often incredibly difficult because they combined the kind of speed and dexterity that comes with Taekwondo with the aggression and kind of the power that comes with Muay Thai. But what I've noticed lately is that people more, and it just happened a couple weeks ago where we have a couple, have people that come in that come from a more recent Taekwondo background and they don't have they don't seem to be able to transition to that aggression and i guess because they're used to a point scoring system and we actually had somebody recently um who i you know who would kind of be kind of fancy with the kicks and land like kind of land to score but as soon as you pressured him and as soon as you gave him a couple hard shots he he would fold because i guess he's not used to that grind (laughs) and not used to like no a fight's a fight like you 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 don't just get to tap somebody (laughs) and run away if you get hit you know you you know you you gotta hurt the person and so i I, you know it's funny that you mentioned because i never put two and two together but i have definitely noticed a shift in the the that the, the style of fighting from people who do make that transition from Taekwondo over to Muay Thai. Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. There's no toughness anymore. It's, it's a game, and it's a sad game. You know, the, the old days of point karate was a lot physically tougher than the tr- traditional Taekwondo of today. So, yeah, unfortunately, uh, unless something's done about it, uh, you know, it'll just keep getting worse and worse. But and yeah, sorry to start on such a, a sour note. That's great for us. Like, and like, for, for, for what it's worth, <laughs> really all all sports martial arts have gone in in the direction of so many rules and regulations and and this and that. Uh, judo, which um, you know is an Olympic sport as well, has changed so much. Where you, there's certain throws you can't do, and you, if you grab someone in a certain part of their gi for two seconds, you have to do this or you get penalized, penalized. And, you know, uh, wrestling (laughs) has made it where they're just forcing, you know, aggression, which is okay, but it's, there's so many rules. And for what it's worth, even mixed martial arts now has a lot of rules compared to when it was just two guys and go in a cage, you know, don't eye gouge and do whatever you want, basically, (laughs) which I, which there's a morbid curiosity about that. You know, we admit that it's a better sport today than it than it was although there is certainly something exciting about that but really i feel that that's the direction all uh, combat real and it's where all sports in for the most part have now become really rule-based really statistic-based just everything it's sort of taken this magic out of sports Right, like baseball is a prime example of that, where it was just go out there. The pitcher would throw till he couldn't throw. Hitters would try to hit. Now they have so much analysis and just so many statistics <laughs> and this and do that. It's like, is it is it more enjoyable to watch? I know that they're trying to win, and there's so much so much money that goes into it now that they have to do this. But really, is it more fun than it used to be? So you know, that's my my view on it. No, you're right. I- I, I agree with everything you just said. And, you know, there's a lot of it's happening in the name of safety. And I agree with safety for the young kids. You know, sure. the kids playing football, to guard against the head injuries. And, but but when, we're, when we're talking about professional athletes and, you know, they've decided to take that road, then, yeah, when you start adding these rules that take so much away from the sport, then uh, people won't 
won't watch it pretty soon. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Taekwondo will be the first to go, and then others will follow probably. So uh, a little question that's <laughs> a little off topic. Have you watched the YouTube series Cobra Kai? It's, oh no! It's I, a continuation so. of the that's Karate Kid. It's it's pre- there was one moment. Yeah. Be, uh, it's basically a continuation. They're all uh, middle. They're middle aged guys now. You know, Johnny is he's living his life, and you know, and you know, Tony he's living his. Is well, it's just it, it's just funny. And there, there's there's one part where he's like, back in the eighties, before all that concussion nonsense, when you did karate, you fought hard. <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely catch that. That looks that looks like it'll be a great, great uh, you know seg, you know whatever whatever they call a sequel or whatever it is. Yeah. That looks great. Yeah, no, it is. So so let's uh, so let's talk a little bit um, about your own kind of professional career. Like, um, what where did you start your own kind of um, like when, when did you decide that you were going to pursue you know fitness um, as a career to you know to the PhD level. Well, I started um, when I was when I was at Penn State. I was majoring in exercise science, and uh, I real I was on the tennis team, and I, I was not a good tennis player. I was number six, and um, I had a I had a lot of psychological problems on the court. You know, I don't know if you're watching Wimbledon at all, but it's so much a mental game, and uh, that was that was my downfall in tennis, where there was too much time between points for me to you know screw around with my head, and by the time the next point came i'd i'd be in you know some other place with my brain so anyway i um i saw the i had a let's see it was a um I'm trying to remember it was an anatomy class where the instructor was the coach of the volleyball team and he said hey is, is there is there any volunteers who would like to be hypnotized and i raised my hand because i thought i need something so he hypnotized me once a week to try to improve my tennis performance. And it, it really didn't help. You know, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I was, I was such a bad player. You know, you can't, you can't improve beyond someone's potential. I didn't have the talent in tennis, but that's when I became infatuated with sports psychology where I, I decided, hey, I'm going to pursue that. So uh, that's when I decided to go to University of North Texas, uh, worked under a great major professor and got a PhD in sports psych. And I thought I was going to work with a professional team. That's what all sports psychologists want in the beginning, but uh, that never came about. I, I don't know if you've noticed, there's very few sports psychologists on professional teams. There's amateurs, like in the Olympics, they all have somebody as a, you know, quote, sports psychologist. But uh, so then I just went into general fitness, meaning I teach at a college. Uh, I teach at a junior college. And, I, you know, I've had opportunities, University of Pennsylvania, Penn State, to go back and teach there. But I fell in love down here with this, and uh, yeah, I've been here for 32 years now. Wow! So, with the sports psychology, um, why why don't you think it's really been adapted at like the professional level with the major teams? Well, here here's my guess, uh, and you tell me what you think. But let's say the sports psychologist says, uh, "Hey, Troy Eggman, you know you're not looking good on our battery of exams that we did this week. I think you should take the week off." Coach says, hey, sports psychologist, we're, you're, you're out of a job. I think that's part of it. I, I honestly do. I think, you know, you know, professional sports, they're there to win. And a sports psychologist, uh, if they're not helping the team win, then, you know, they're gone. So I, I'm assuming that's part of it. But that's a, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? 
Yeah, I don't. I, I guess that that's that sounds good because I would. You know, it's one of those things. I definitely have heard of plenty of individual sport athletes who who work you know individually with sports psychologists. So it's just something I never considered. I just thought that would just be part of of major sports teams. So I you know never never didn't realize that that's not a case because I definitely I know of and have heard of many fighters, um, tennis players. You know, again, it's athletes that kind of to an extent can kind of create their own schedule and have to build their own teams definitely benefit from, from it. Um, but yeah, never heard, uh, you know, didn't know, realize that, that it's not really employed much with, with any of the major kind of pro teams. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I did, I, when, um, I moved to Mount Pleasant, which is a very small town in East Texas and I became a generalist. So I decided that, you know, you have most, most people, if they want to be successful, they, they become very specific in what they want to do, like, you know, be the best uh, sports psychologist or whatever. But at, in a small town, I, I, then I decided I'm going to change my whole focus and try to become as good as I can at all different facets of fitness. So I got involved with all the different certifications and began teaching in the fitness industry, you know, going, traveling every weekend and did all that for about 10 years. But, um, then the travel became so tedious. I don't know. Some of my friends, I don't know how they do it. I don't know if you guys do much travel, but um, from what I'm hearing, the airport situation is no better than it was 10 years ago. Is that true? Uh, it, it it depends on where you travel out of it. We're in New York, so it's always it's always kind of a nightmare. Um, but but yeah, like yeah. I, I went, I traveled internationally a couple of months, about a month ago, and we, I flew out of kind of this obscure airport, a little upstate New York, and that was a breeze. So, you know, I think to some extent, it just depends on like where you're, where you're traveling out of, but it definitely isn't pleasant, especially if you're going through a major airport. You know, three letters and a yeah. word, TSA pre-check. <laughs> if you travel a lot, yeah. do it. It's like say $70 or something and then you can just walk on through. So if you travel a lot, uh, right, in, in the United States, especially if you're in Los Angeles or New York, you know, hubs, right, highly recommended. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great to remember. Um, well, anyway, one more thing about this small town. There's nothing to do. So I, that's when I decided to start riding my bike. And uh, I started riding in 1988. Yeah, 1988. And uh, by one year later, I mean, this sounds crazy. I can't even believe that this happened, but I'm you know, looking at the numbers. I entered my first huge race. Have you ever heard of the Race Across America? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a bike race. You start with your back wheel in the Pacific and finish with your front wheel in the yeah. Atlantic. And you can sleep as little or as long as you like. And it used to be profiled on uh, Wide World of Sports. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. That was yeah. an old TV program, but yeah. But but now they, it gets no publicity. I mean, a guy, the race just happened in June. Or June, I forget what date, but this guy just rode his bike. The, the guy who won, he finished in eight days and one hour riding over 3,000 miles. And no one knows about it because it, it doesn't seem, you know, there's no publicity. There's It's, it's kind of an underground, I think. Yeah. Of, of you know cr crazy cyclists, but but I, I got bitten by that bug. I am you know it was one of those things where first the first race I entered was a, a sixty mile race, and then a hundred mile race, then a five hundred mile race, and then the race across America was three thousand miles. 
And it, it took me it took me ten days, three hours, and thirty two minutes. But it was an epic adventure. I you know I highly recommend for any listeners who are really addicted to endurance sports. In fact, Outside Magazine calls it the toughest sporting event in the world. I don't know if I'd say that, but it's just the reason they said that is so few people finish the race when the, you know those that start, so few people finish. Yeah. But uh, that 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 became an addiction for me for years where. Uh, I just entered long distance races and uh, it, it, be, it became something where if, and I don't know about what you guys think about this, but that was my most creative time when I was pedaling training in East Texas and I'm riding, you know, I'm riding for hours and I'm thinking of stuff, cool stuff. And I, I come back and I write it down. And, and as you mentioned, I've, I've written many books. Many, most of those books were written in my head when I was riding on the roads of East Texas. So I think everybody, whether it's riding a bike or walking, just those are the best times to contemplate and to, to figure out what you want to do next with your life. At least, at least that was it for me. I definitely agree to an extent that while I'm working out, um, ideas come. Sadly for me, the most creative moments are – you know, when I'm on the, uh, you know, in the facilities. So I know I'm not the only one who, who said uh. that before, but so my, my moments of, uh, great moments of creativity are, are fleeting. So, but yes, no, definitely. It's true. So actually, you know, interesting. I, I don't know what podcast, I, I don't remember cause it was about a year ago, but there was a one of, I was, I, maybe it was this American life or radio lab or some podcast did an episode on that race and um, it was following a group, and I, I, I gotta find it because I remember it was a, it was I remember it being compelling, um, and that was where I heard about it. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's as it, as far as now, like it is obscure, and that unless you're into cycling, you know, nobody, you know, I don't think anyone would hear about it. Do you th- do you think that yeah. uh, perhaps endurance races? It's clearly like the the sexy ones, the marathons. Uh, certain Olympic races get a lot of publicity, but sort of these underground, uh, I guess what you would call underground races, maybe certain triathlons, uh, just really tough sports to participate in might not get the, the um, I guess, the publicity or not necessarily the credit, but just pe- the people aren't paying attention to it because of certain uh, of things that are sexy, like the Spartan race or CrossFit, like these sort of really... In sort of well-marketed, um, you know, races or events that drag people in that, you know, you could train for it and then you can go and then it's done and you have this clear goal and then you're done and you can, you know, happy with your team as, a, as opposed to a, 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 a bike race across the country, which is amazing, but it's hard. You'd say if you, if you finish in the middle of the pack – you say you finished it, which is great, but it just doesn't. Perhaps to some people, it just doesn't sound as cool as I finished a Spartan race with my team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think you said a couple of really important things. Number one, I think the most important thing is that you said is well marketed, and you're right to to cover the race across America logistically. Imagine you know drive riding across country with TV cameras or whatever. So that in itself would would make it a tough spectator sport. No, but I think you're absolutely right with what you just said. And, and along that line for your listeners, and this is, this is something that I don't know if you, you guys have seen this research, but it's scary and it's happened to me. And that is, um, up until my forties, I had no problem, you know, physical, no, no problems physically, absolute, you know, 
wonderful, you know. Then, boom, everything hit. Like, um, you, you probably have heard of atrial fibrillation. You all have heard of that, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I, I went to a cardiologist, and he said that all the, all the endurance work that I had done caused scarring of the heart. And, you know, I had no, I had no idea that that was happening when I was training and racing. And now I'm seeing a lot of my colleagues who were, you know, who were on the bike a lot like me, they're developing, uh, this AFib and, uh, a flutter. So, uh, I've, I've had two ablations so far. A cardiac ablation is where they go in through your groin and they actually burn parts of your heart that are causing the irregular, the irregular signal. And, uh, fortunately it's a cure. And I, you know, you know, knock on wood, I'm still riding my bike and I'm quote cured, but wow, I no longer recommend to people to do what the kind of craziness that I did for years of riding. Literally I'd be riding eight hours a day. I know it sounds, how can you do that? Well, I'd schedule my day so that, you know, I'd ride in the morning before anybody was up and I'd ride at lunchtime and ride in the evening. And I, I, I had literally, literally ridden million, over a million miles. We did the, the calculations. And imagine what that does to human beings, to our hearts. We're not designed, you know, this yeah. is what I'm discovering now. I wish I'd have known it before. We're not designed for these multi-day, crazy, high, high, you know, not just, piddling along but you know pushing your maximum heart rate for day after day and only sleeping two hours a night so anyway yeah i i kind of push people away from that kind of thing or if they do it do it once and then say you've done it but don't keep doing it for years like some of us yeah my my uncle was a is a big marathon runner he's um you know he's early uh, no mid mid 60s but he's he's run i dozens of marathons as far as i know and and he actually had um had to have uh, bypass surgery not too long ago and he's one of the healthiest people i know like he's been you know vegetarian and clean eating for who knows how long and in, in addition to running all the time and yeah it's like that it, it it's crazy that that can happen to somebody you know that you think wow i'm just doing tons of cardio and it's it's so healthy how could that happen so it's, it's <laughs> right scary. yeah it, it's like any and, and you, you guys, I'm sure, uh, preach to the choir when, when you're telling people that moderation, even in fitness, yeah, uh, you can overtrain and everything. And yeah. Well, one, yeah. So, well, one thing the um, kind of obsession, I guess, with cycling did get you is a Guinness World Record. So can you tell us a little, a little bit about the record and uh, how it came about? Yeah, this was crazy. Okay. In 2007. Okay. I did the Race Across America in 1990, and that's when I finished in 10 days. And then 17 years later, I decided to try it again. You know, after developing a lot of physical ailments, I thought, I still want to do this. So I got together this really sparse support crew of only three people, and everybody else has at least six to ten. And uh, long story short, made it halfway across the country, ran out of money. <laughs> so. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, because it's really expensive race. I mean, you got to have probably, okay, in, in 1990, I got across on 6,000, which was written up in the book as the cheapest ever to get across. You, you should have about 10 grand before you decide to do this thing. But so in, that was 2007. And then in 2008, I decided I'm going to try to raise money for the race across America by trying to set a Guinness World Record on a stationary bike. 
So I flew up to Chicago. We were going to do it during the Chicago Marathon at their convention center. Flew up there, all ready to go. But then at the last minute, our camera was stolen. And um, we didn't have the medical witnesses that had to be there 24-7. So I fly back to Texas, dejected, completely thinking, you know, it's, it's over. But then a revelation. I thought, why not just do it at the college where I teach with the medical personnel, all the nursing students, they, they wouldn't be able to do that. So long story short, I rode a stationary bike for 185 hours, which uh, I know that sounds like a lot. It's, it's a little over seven days. Wow. And uh, you, you were asking a little bit about it. I was allowed off the bike five minutes every hour. But instead of doing that, I banked those minutes so that I could sleep for an hour and 15 minutes every morning from 4 to 5.15. So imagine after day six, that's when the hallucination started. I mean, bad hallucination. I mean, if I had known in, you know, back then how, how bad sleep deprivation can affect your physiology, yeah. I may not have done it. But uh, anyway, uh, we did set the record. It was uh, When I say we, uh, boy, you talk about needing a support crew you for every event like race cross america or guinness world record you need people to help you and without them you know i wouldn't have been able to stay on the bike so it was hats off to them but i'm sure and i haven't even followed it but i'm sure that record has been broken uh you know how guinness thing is and and believe me the hardest part about that if you're ever considering doing anything with guinness the logistics of getting, you have to have a camera 24-7. They, they require so yeah. much. Um, yeah, so that, that was the hardest part, to be honest with you. Yeah, actually, a while back, one early on in my days as a trainer, um, there was a guy that would come into my gym, and he would literally just come in and just do an hour's worth of crunches, and then he'd leave, and he'd come back and do an hour's worth of crunches, and he'd leave, and, he'd and it was just this regular thing until one day the manager was like, hey, you know, I forget the guy's name, and he was like, hey, why don't you just try for the Guinness – World record. The, the the actual the guy <laughs> the guy didn't speak English very well. So the manager um, Anthony he uh, he just went about it to went about like get it fit doing the whole process. And it was it was like, we needed media and we needed a camera the whole time and you needed like so <laughs> there were three uh, three of us. I was one of them with the with those little clickers and we're just clicking away for the whole hour. Um, but <laughs> he he broke the world record for crunches in an hour. But then. A year later, somebody broke that. But I forget the exact numbers. But like, if he did like six thousand, somebody then the next year did like ten thousand. So yeah, it's one of those things that I guess you know, once <laughs> once someone gets a certain number, like then I, you know you know people come out of the woodworks to, to try to break it. But but that's still it's insane that so like well my, my question is how do they come up with why like what was the reasoning behind giving you like the five minutes or you know like how do they come up with their the what's the rationale behind like what their parameters are. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay. All I know is that, that when I, you know, I had to call London first. That was the hardest part for them to answer the phone. Yeah. And then they, they, they asked me my address, so they sent me this packet of information. And, you know, apparently since this, uh, and, and I got to admit, it was a crazy, you know, like I was fortunately sponsored by, I don't know if you've heard of full strength, Sean Phillips, but uh, he was behind it. He helped me, but he, he made some really funny uh comments and some of his writings afterwards of like, you know, pedaling to nowhere and mind numbing experience, which is absolutely what it was. <laughs> it was, it was crazy. But yeah, they sent me this packet of information because the, the record had been done before. Um, if it would have been a new thing, then I don't know, maybe they would have had compromises, but no, I had to follow everything, you know, 
three witnesses in the room at all time and then one medical witness, so that's four people in the room at all time. They had to sign all this paperwork, a camera rolling 24-7. Uh, and, you know, crazy things happened. Like, uh, I guess it was day four. See, I would change the seat every few hours because imagine the, that was the toughest part, you know, meaning you, that's touching the bike and your hands and your, my forearms using an aero bar. So I would just change the seat and that would alleviate any problems. But then the seat got stuck. And so that became a huge issue where I developed in saddle sores. It's, you know, where you're chafing and yeah. bleeding. And so that became a huge issue. But we, we got through that. Um, and I was on a liquid diet so that I wouldn't have to run to the bathroom. Right. So uh, this is at a small college. And what we, we configured this. Uh, I used a wrestling mat. And I could, with my left hand, bring the mat around me so no one could see me while I had a little tennis can that I would urinate into every maybe hour and a half, whatever, because I'm drinking this full-strength product for the rest of that's all. I'm no, no solid food. So we have this bag of urine-filled tennis ball cans ready to, you know, we needed to throw them away. So I had one of my support crew guys, he picks up the bag and you, you can imagine, boom, it rips uh, all the tennis ball cans uh, explode. Over. <laughs> yeah. Right there. Un unbelievable. So anyway, we, we had some incidents like that. And one, one girl caught me, you know, she'll never forget this scene in her life, but she was supposed to wake me up at um, like five fifteen, but I was already awake and I was going from, my um, sleeping bag, but I had no clothes to the locker room and she catches me and I jump and turn around, you know, poor, poor girl scarred for the rest of her life. So really, you know, it was a, a lot of funny little things that happened, but uh, unfortunately they didn't let me know that I had set the record until May of that same year. We did the, we did the thing in uh, December and you know, the race across America is June. So I, didn't wasn't able to use any any sponsorship uh you know so anyway that the whole purpose went kind of down the tubes but but it was to be honest like it was an adventure and and getting all of those college personnel i mean it's like that's what's the amazing part to get all these people to come out of like three in the morning two in the morning to be witnesses and uh yeah that that always is what makes things fun in life you know where other people are involved with you Sure, sure. So you talked earlier about uh, the books that you have written, and your most recent one is called Glitches to Gold, Live Like a Champion. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, um, it's, it's really talking about how to deal with adversity. Hmm. And we've already discussed a little bit about adversity here, and we all do it. We all have to deal with it. And, and I wrote it from a first-person perspective that, you know, I don't know how many times I've reinvented myself, you know, over the years, you know, from from one, you know, going from one thing to another. And and we all have to do that in order to keep going and, and stay, stay alive, actually, where what I've noticed in my life, and I just kind of figured this out recently, for anything good to have happened, something bad happened before it. And when I say bad, something very challenging before something good. And, and I don't know if that's with everybody, 
but but I decided to just sit down and chronicle it, you know, just write it. And that's what I did with Glitches into Gold. And there's there's some fitness stuff in there too, you know, discussing the diet, you know, all the crazy eating programs that I've been on for different things over the years. And then, the, you know, the exercise and the overtraining and the, you know, just putting it all together into kind of a novel so that it, it doesn't flow like, okay, I've, I've written, as you said, I've written other books and many of them are didactic, you know, like, uh, athletic abs or mm. another book, um, mind body fitness. So, so those books are kind of to help you, you know, step-by-step step reach your goals. But this one is more about you read about these experiences and then come up with your own ideas about how it might help you. So that's, that's why I wrote it. And uh, anyway, it, it was fun. It was a very cathartic experience. And that's why I kind of recommend everybody do their own glitches to gold book, you know, just the, wow. call it a different title. Yeah, I can, yeah. So it, it, it's funny because it sounds very Jim Witsian to talk about your experience and then sort of create a philosophy, read it, um, uh, writing your own experiences, reading about someone else's and sort of coming up with these ideas. Uh, funny, Ryan and I often talk about writing a book and the, the discussion is always, well, what, is a publisher going to be interested in something that is a little esoteric, right? Everyone wants the, you know, uh, keys to a flat stomach or, you know, get into shape or eat, you know, this, you know, in, in three weeks or this, this diet for a better life. They, they want things like that. And for what it's worth, they sell. So it's sort of a discussion yeah. that Ryan and I have have had about to write our philosophies down and whether or not people would be interested. And um, so along those lines, if you uh, while we're in the self help world, and Ryan and I recently uh, did the National Publicity Summit, which was really cool, and we met some good people there, and we've interviewed a lot of people uh, and sort of played in that world of self-help and I guess we would be a part of that world we're helping people um, but it, the self-help sort of has I, I always I still think about it this way I remember as I was a kid and as now it has this sort of this vibe to it that it, for me is very uncomfortable right it's people the, all these <laughs> sort of this ultra forced positivity which and I'm all about being positive like you cannot be negative and and really succeed it just pessimism is 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 really not healthy i mean like everyone gets pessimistic on occasion but this sort of almost forced positive and and, and you know everything's great and, and <laughs> achieve this and eight steps to the you know to uh to your goals and, and just sort of this it feels so forced and then you uh i remember as i was yeah. when i was a kid the infomercials with um Tony Robbins and saying you can achieve this greatness with it and these sort of like if you think about it that's strange they give you these methods but that's sort of esoteric too but it's packaged differently but you're not like that you don't preach these eight step methods or this ultra positivity <laughs> what do you think about that world and, and how did you come to your uh, your your disposition right now your views on self-help wow, and, and sort of what it, what it really is and sort of what all that other stuff is. You, you Sorry, I just gave you, I just, <laughs> I, I just totally threw a mouthful at you. No, you just read my mind. I mean, that's exactly what has happened uh, throughout my career. I, I, like I said, I did those self-help books. 
I worked with uh, the Complete Idiot Guide series and wrote five books with them and very didactic, very structured, what you just said. And this is why I did the Glitches into Gold, because it's, I'm not preaching and I'm just explaining the experiences and letting the readers come to their own conclusions. And in answer to your question about a publisher, here's my opinion. Okay, uh, ironically, while I was writing Glitches into Gold, I was working on a product, you know, I've, I've done several abdominal books, books on abdominals, and um, I was thinking about a product to help people, you know how America is so sedentary and uh, it's worse than ever and people sit around all day and maybe they go to the gym for an hour, but they're, they're sitting so long that that's, you've heard the statement, it's worse than smoking. Oh, so yeah, yeah, we talk about that I all the time. This, yes, yeah, it's, it's horrible. So I, I came up with this device and... Uh, thought about marketing it, and then while I was doing the research on it, I turned this research into a book that's coming out September 1st called Your Best Abs, and it's it's basically techniques that um, have you have you guys heard of Stuart McGill? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. Stuart McGill. I, I love him. One of the best. Yeah, he's he's great. I mean, I love him, and and I, what I did was I took a lot of his precepts. And then put my own little spin on it and, you know, gave him credit, of course, but uh, came up with a kind of not, not a new abdominal workout, but something that's a little different than what's out there right now. You know, the crunches, the sit-ups, the planks and all that. But anyway, um, getting back to the, the, the point is that the didactic tell, tell people what to do, uh, I and the self-help, I'm laughing to myself while you're saying that because my mother, she had all the Wayne Dyer books and all the, and I'm thinking, you know, she's a worrier and so am I. And I thought, did that really help her? And not really, you know, all these books that purport. Now, I've heard really good things about Anthony Robbins. Is it Anthony Robbins? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tony Robbins, yeah. yeah Tony. Is. Yeah, Tony Robbins. I've heard some good things about him, so I would never you know, uh, castigate someone who may be helping the world. Sure. Uh, and, but and I know what you, know you mean. You I'm, do, I'm, and this I'm, help does help people, for sure. There are lots of people that yeah. are affected very positively by 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 Tony Robbins and, and similar courses. Yes. But so, so that's the point. Yeah, there's, it's kind of like, but like you're saying, it's, it's almost like the market is saturated by that. And I think you guys have a good idea. Write a book about your philosophy. And Believe me, if you have some good material in there, you'll find a publisher. That's what I did. I wrote, I wrote the whole thing, and then uh, I, I didn't find a publisher easily. I admit it. Of all the books I've ever written, this is the hardest to find a publisher. But I, I did finally find one. So you guys will too. I mean, because you have the credibility of the podcast, so that'll you'll have that going for you as well, big time. So. Um... Can you tell us a little bit about like when it comes to your own, you know, your own fitness uh, and health and exercise? Like, what is your philosophy of fitness? We always kind of like to ask that as a as a as pseudo philosophers. Uh, we always kind of like to know what our guests kind of what their own kind of fitness philosophy is. Well, and, and here here's where I truly believe it's different from for every single person. And here's what I mean. Um, Experts would say that I overtrain still, you know, even though I'm in my early 60s. But I love training, and I've found a way that I can do it every day without orthopedic injuries, and I no longer have the heart issues. And so I'm going to do it every day. 
But I tell my students at the college, I tell them what the research says, you know, twice a week for strength training, cardio a few times a week, depending on your goals. And then eating properly is most important. Stretching is very important, especially as you get older. And, and I, I continue to stretch every day. And, and then, you know, the, the part that is missing for a lot of people is the emotional, spiritual, which I think if that's not there, then uh, the rest goes down the tubes. So, yeah, in, in answer to your question about philosophy, it's putting all of that together into a workable program that you're, you know, un, unlike, you know, a lot of your listeners may, okay, I'll, I'll go backwards and say, have, have you guys seen that show, Your Strange Addiction? Yes. Okay. Um, I don't know if you watch it much, but uh, I think in 2012 I was profiled on there because I, I first contacted the Discovery Channel where I wanted them to cover that world record that I was doing. And at first they said yes, you know, but then when they found they'd have to drive to Mount Pleasant and stay there for a week, they said it's too expensive. So the lady who was the... Uh, I don't know, program director or something for Discovery Channel. She then joined this TLC network, and she, she remembered me, and so she said, hey, well, why don't you be on My Strange Addiction? And at first I declined, and, and then she sent me some clips of, because I, I had never even seen the show, and, and she sent me clips of a weightlifter, I don't know if you saw that clip, or um, and then a runner. And they looked a little weird. You know, they had psychologists, and so I asked her point blank. I said, look, is this going to be the real truth or is this going to be, you know, making me look like a madman? And she said, Oh no, 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 we're just going to film you for four days. and It'll be the truth. Well, <laughs> they filmed for four days and they didn't say why I was training. You know, they, I was on my bike like eight hours a day, but they didn't say why they didn't say he had a race coming up. Or, and, you know, so, so they, it made me look like a madman, someone who's just always on his bike. So the reason I brought that up is that people are so different. I mean, like you, like you said, you have a lot of listeners who are addicted to exercise. But I, what I wanted to show people in that episode was that, yes, I created, I know this will sound crazy, in order to ride your bike eight hours a day, in order to train for Race Across America, you don't overtrain for Race Across America. You you got to be comfortable on your bike 22 hours a day. So I wanted to be addicted to exercise for me to achieve the goal of completing that race. And, you know, and here, here's the funny thing, which I don't know if people realize. For, for cycling anyway, I'm not saying necessarily for smoking or narcotics or whatever, but I was able to quit my addiction to cycling immediately after I decided that I no longer had ultra-endurance as a goal. So I no longer trained that crazily anymore because my goal had changed. So anyway, that's, that's the point I wanted to make, that we're all, you know, as far as a philosophy of fitness, I don't ever uh, put anybody down. We, we are, we're all in our absolute universe of, you know, why does someone work out? Why does someone seem to be training all the time? Why does someone not want to do anything? But I think if people were exposed to something that they love, whether it be walking or pedaling, and just let them do it a few minutes a day, then it becomes habit, then they become, quote, addicted, and then they'll be healthier and, and enjoy it. So that's, that's my philosophy. 
Sounds like a pretty sound philosophy and certainly something that we can all really abide by, listen to. Find something that you love that, that's good for you and, and do it. I think that's a, it's a, it's pretty, it sounds simple, but it's a pretty powerful uh, philosophy. So now where can yeah. people find you? Oh, I mean, I, I guess the easiest way is Facebook because okay. I have a website, but uh, I, I love when people message me or, uh, you know, just if they have a post they want to put up there. Yeah, and that's the easiest way. It's just Great. Tom Seaborn on Facebook. Fantastic. And uh, so Glitches to Gold is out currently, and you have another book coming in yes. September. What's the book? What, what's, what is the title of the book coming in September? Do you have the title? Yeah, it's called Your Best Abs. That's right, Your Best Abs. Okay. And, um, and right. what, what I was going to say about that that you might, be in, you might be interested in, it's a way to train the core mm. without doing sit-ups, without doing crunches, without ever going to the floor. And it's a way to train the core, which is the way it should be. You know, your, your abdominal muscles are designed to resist spinal extension, not to do flexing, you know, flexion of spine over and over and over. And I'm, I'm using McGill's words right now. Mm. And so anyway, uh, I'm using easy techniques that you just practice several times a day that will train the core, and in my opinion, the way it was designed to be trained. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. I, I haven't read the book, but just hearing you say that, um, you get definitely certification from me because I think that's the big issue we have when it comes to all the ab stuff is that it's so um, focused on on spinal flexion um, to the point where I think it, you know it could be problematic for for most people. If, if at a minimum it's useless, and at worst it could be causing injuries. So so that sounds great. Yes, and and that's why you know I. I give it all to Stuart McGill, and everybody listening should just Google him yeah. and look at his books and look at his videos, and, and then you'll realize you'll, you'll never do another sit-up again after watching his videos. Hmm. Well, Tom, thank you so much. It was a, uh, a great conversation. You definitely have a different approach than a lot of our guests. I thought it was, um, you know, it was entertaining to be a part of. <laughs> oh, it was my pleasure, and I, it was truly an honor to be on your program, and Whenever it comes out, I'll, I'd love to broadcast it out there on Facebook and all my social media. So uh, thank you again. I really appreciate it. So I know we always say this, but that really was a, a fun, you know, very interesting conversation. Yeah. So now you, you've given up that we, we lie about it most of the time? No. No. No, actually, we, we have. That was, it, no. was just, it, was just, um, it was just unique because Tom does live in the self-help world. He's published yeah. books and he's... Um, uh, given strategies to you know helping people with their fitness or mm-hmm. whatever it is motivation, but he has a different demeanor. Yeah, you know, we're used to. We've had a lot of self help people on the show, and uh, not that it's once again not that it's bad, but they have this sort of demeanor and they have these systems. You know, six steps to doing this, and they have these methods, and that just wasn't his style. Yeah. No, I, you know, he was I down to it. earth. And- and you just, to me, it was very relatable. Yeah, absolutely. I think our, I mean, this isn't my, I get charged with not being energetic enough sometimes in class, well, like when I teach classes that I'm, I'm more straightforward. And as I've you know, talked about before, that, that sometimes for some people, they want me to be more, you know, bounce off the walls. But for me, that's, that's not me. And so I think for some people, um, there's a, I don't want to say phony, but there is a clear kind of, 
projection of energy that's not really there. You know, the, like there's some people who are just high energy and super positive. And then there's some that you can tell they're kind of forcing it a little bit. And I like that he he is really knowledgeable and engaging, but but takes it from the perspective of it's more real. And and I think I was going to say at some point like for someone who's cynical like me, if somebody's too high energy like too overwhelmingly positive i i just think it's bs so it's kind of like i I like that his demeanor and his approach is is much more realistic but it's motivating like when you hear the stuff he does clearly there's there's motivation and there's drive uh you have to have that and it makes you want to you know do something i don't know about doing a you know coast to coast bike ride but you know it does make you want to get up and, and and get you know be active so i think um i really yeah really enjoyed it i mean i think I enjoy all of our interviews. I think we, yeah. we generally have a good time. So, so um, it, it's always fun. But I, I definitely like um, that his kind of perspective is definitely more in line with us. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> that's that. <laughs> like we, Ryan, Ryan crept back from, yeah. the, uh, from the mic. Yeah, exactly. Like I sat back and said, all right, so you know, Justin can like, do no, something that, and he has that, nothing That's to say. it. It's like, yeah. you're right. So. Yeah. All right. And we so probably much. talked your ear off about martial arts and all this stuff, MMA and everything today. So um, with that, uh, as you know, go to thegymwits.com for all of our stuff for you know, social media, Instagram, all that good stuff. Uh, thegymwits.libson.com um, to fill out the survey and help us out. Uh, if you haven't rated us on iTunes, please do that. It helps us um, infinitely. Uh, we're getting lots and lots more listeners, um, but we need your, your new listeners. We need your help in getting us ranked high so that we can, uh, you know, get some of that iTunes love. So, um, or app, sorry, Apple podcasts. Love. Yeah, um, so continue to help write in your and questions. Yeah, write in your questions for Ask the Trainer. We'll be recording an Ask the Trainer episode, um, a little bit later today. So, um, definitely send your questions in. Obviously you're going to miss, uh, the next one, but, uh, we do them pretty regularly. Uh, we get a good deal of questions now. So, um, we're always kind of redoing that uh, type of episode. So, uh, that's it. I'm Ryan George. I'm Justin Guild, a.k.a. Chef Sonic, reminding you that truth does not sell. And we are the humans. <laughs>